When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the GM Shuffle. The guy's a car salesman. I mean, he go get him an Audi dealership. Let him sell cars. I mean, Jesus Christ. He's a TV I guy. I do what things my way. How, what the f*** is his way? He's never done this job before, so how does he have a way? You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Our producer, Elliot Bowman, with us on the ones and twos, as always. And we didn't coordinate this for the audience that's watching on YouTube, but it, it's a pl- we're wearing plaid for the playoffs, both Michael and a I. Plaid playoffs. <laughs> got plaid to. Playoffs, yeah, man. We're playing for I mean, keys. it's cold out here in Jersey. I got I got hand warm. My hands get cold so often that I got to walk around with hand warmers all the time. I have no idea why that happens. <laughs> yeah, you know, right, but right, right, I mean, I'm freezing. It's, we, we got cold back here in the East again, Femi. I mean, it's cold, and, and I got we got to start this pot off with, you know, 24 years ago, I think it was on the 10th mm-hmm. that the Sopranos came into our lives, and God, I'm so thankful for that. David Chase, and, and I mean, there's not a day that goes by that there's some point of reference. I posted the clip on YouTube where Tony's in talking to Melfi, and to me, it's the most defining clip of all, and it's in season six, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's the one where he talks about Vito being gay, and Tony goes into it, but the back and forth. You know, when, when Melfi says, you knew he was gay? And, of course, Tony says, I had him pegged all along. And then he says, you know, well, he was really helpful with our, you know, my medical stay when I was in the hospital. And she says, well, you've indicated that you've had lots of money. And, and then he goes, uh, what's, you know, like, it's this back. He's lying. She's correcting him. And then she directs him on what to do. To me, it, it's the most brilliant scene of all the scenes that there ever been. And I just love it. I mean, you got to get season two. I mean, people are going to be on your ass if you don't get season two, Femi. The people are on my ass about it. And I'm telling them, hey, I'm trying to watch all these football games. I'm trying to keep up with what's going on. I watch all the football games and I got it in. There's no excuse. Don't start like Jeff fucking Saturday over here making excuses. Like, and we'll get to him in a minute. And we'll get to him in a minute. But don't you start making Jeff sad. Oh, I don't have any time. I'm watching football games. Like, no, I'm no, too, no, I'm not going to tolerate that, I'm Femi. I'm grinding tape, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I grind tape too. I watch it. 
We'll get to Jeff Saturday. We'll also get to the situation in Baltimore with Lamar Jackson once again missing practice on Wednesday, looking unlikely that he'll be the starter for the Ravens this upcoming weekend in the wild card round. But first, Michael, let's start off with the coaching carousel in the news that we saw last night. The New York Jets and coordinator, the offensive coordinator, Mike LaFleur, have mutually parted ways after two seasons. Yeah, LaFleur, I love that. LaFleur came over with Robert Sala from San Francisco, uh, the brother of your favorite head coach of the Green Bay Packers, Matt LaFleur. But uh, what do you make of this situation, LaFleur leaving I, I, after the offense kind of really went off the rails with Zach Wilson and Co. Well, I mean, like, I love how they mutually are parting ways. That You know, Salai and him are best friends, so he doesn't want to mm-hmm. say he fired him. You know, so, again, you know, like, he can't see the forest for the trees because – he, he can't think that his offense is bad, that the scheme is bad. Even though they've got really good players, it's just the quarterback, right? So he doesn't want to fire his best friend. It just shows you, the wording of this shows you Salai's not really a leader. He's not taking command of it. Now, he's protecting his friend, and I get all that, and certainly you want to do that. But we all can read between the lines here. First of all, Woody Johnson, the owner of the team, he didn't hire Salai. He was out of the country eating eating dumplings over in Ireland and having a warm beer and, and hanging out. He was the ambassador to Ireland. Got to be a good gig. I bet you gained about 30 pounds on that gig. But anyway, eating all those potatoes. But the fact is, the fact is he didn't hire Salai. So th- that end of the season meeting was, if you don't want to fire him, we'll fire you. I mean... Yeah. You can, they can couch this any way they want. They can do whatever they want to do. They can set out all the – that was the conversation. And so, you know, they mutually agreed upon parting ways, you know. I mean, really, seriously? But I don't think I, – I don't think LaFleur – I mean, when Mike White played, they actually looked like a better offense. But he's taken – this is a – I mean, this is the first coach that Zach Wilson will have gotten fired. Now, will there be more? Probably. Well, will there be more? Are they going to let him play quarterback anymore? <laughs> I don't know. If well, they obviously are going to let him play quarterback because they got rid of the guy that probably didn't want him to play quarterback. I mean, that's fair. I'm sure LaFleur's like, like, like LaFleur's like, I've had enough of this guy. Like, I can't deal with this guy. You know, like, I'm sure he's probably sitting there saying, I can't get him to work. Now, Woody and the front office is probably saying, well, it's coaching. The kid's really a good kid. They just can't relate to him. It's that old, you know, that when they ever see that trick where you have the, the three uh, containers on top of a table and there's a lemon and they move it all around and they, mm-hmm. you know, it's players, coaches, and scheme. Where's the lemon, right? Yeah. And so the coaches blame the player, the players blame the scheme, the scheme, and the front office blames the coach. It just goes moving around. Nobody identifies what the real problem is or is willing to admit what the real problem is, right? The kid's immature. The kid has no interest in wanting to be a great player. He's happy. He's content. He's, you know, and so, like, you can blame the coaches, sure. You know, you can say LaFleur's scheme wasn't great, but obviously LaFleur didn't capture his attention, didn't motivate him enough. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot of blame to go around. I just think this. For all this conversation about the Jets being this great team and they were just a quarterback short, did you watch the Miami uh, Jet game at the end of the year? Unfortunately, yes, I did watch it. I mean, they Miami ran the ball down their throat. This is supposed to be this elite defense? Give up 160 yards rushing when you know they got to run the football? They're in an eight-man front. I thought the tackling on the Jets, as the year wore on, if I were Joe Douglas, and I'm not, I never got A's for drafts. He always does. If I were Joe Douglas, I would be like, Robert, look, this is why we're never going to get to the playoffs because the, the way we practice and the way we go, our tackling has become horseshit. Like our pad level has become horseshit. Like we're getting worse as the year goes on, not better. You know – 
reading from the tea leaves and what you just said here about whether it was an ultimative sent from the ownership group of saying, hey, we're either going to fire you, Robert Sala, or we're going to fire Mike LaFleur. It, does Robert Sala begin 2023 squarely on the hot seat? As oh, he's so fucking hot. Okay. I mean, he's so hot. It's like, you know, there's no doubt he's hot. I mean, there's no way. He's, he's uh, you know, you know he's taking receipts, but he's also hot. I mean, I mean, look, the fact that they had a chance. They had a chance, yeah. right? They had a chance. I mean, they're sitting there at the end of the year. They go into Seattle. They shouldn't have played. They shouldn't have played Mike White. That kid had broken ribs. That poor kid couldn't do anything. So, like, you know, like he he had it right under his control, and yet because of the quarterback, I, I mean, I I just don't get it. I, I don't see it. I didn't see it with him as a head coach. I never have. You know, San Francisco got better when he left. I don't see what he brings to the table defensively. Their special teams has been an issue. Mm-hmm. Good. I mean, you know, whomever he hires has got to. I'm sure whoever he hires has got to sign off on Wilson. Man, that's that's going to be a tough one for whichever offensive coordinator is going to say, "Hey, I can get the most out of Zach Wilson." And if they do get the most out of Zach Wilson, maybe this team can get better. But it's not looking good for our friends over there in gang green. I, I do find it funny, the mutually parted ways situation, because I'm like, how does that conversation work? Does it, is it LaFleur then goes to Sala and is like, hey, man, I've been thinking, then Sala's like, hey, I've been thinking the same thing as well. Let, let's split yeah, up. Like, like, how does that can work? I tell you how, can I tell you how that goes? <laughs> how does it go? Sala goes in to meet with Woody and Joe Douglas and whoever else is in the front office, and they say, look, you know, you got to make a change on the offense coordinator. I don't want to make a change on the offense coordinator. It's not his fault. You, either you make a change or we're going to make a change. So now Salah's got to go back to his office and say, do I want to keep this job or do I want to fight for a cause? Okay, how about if we do this? Or how about if we say it like that? That's what happened. Mm. I mean, I, there's, this is not – they didn't just situ- mutually agree upon to sever- parting ways. That's so loosely worded. Does that mean you're not going to pay him? Because Does that mean he quit and you agreed to let him quit? Yeah. So is he not getting compensated for his next two years of his deal? See, nobody asked the lingering questions. They fired him. Understandable. Everybody, we all get fired. It's yep. not a scar on Mike LaFleur's fault. It's not his problem. It's not, it's not that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that like we all got fired. We all get fired. You got fired, and Salai, Salai couldn't protect you, which tells you he's on loose footing. Mm. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a situation where it's mutually parting ways where it's 50-50. Uh, one party, yeah, I mean, one then the he, and then and then Douglas comes out and says, "Well, you know, he has a full authority on his coaching staff." No, no, yeah. you're not turning off of your franchise to a guy who you know who is a coordinator and never been a, like that. Like I, I think Sean Payton will have that. I know mm-hmm. Bill Belichick will have that. There's certain coaches that do, but there's a lot of coaches that have influence. Like you know, like and and I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, if he had full influence on who his staff was, I think Mike LaFleur would still be the offensive coordinator. I mean, look, let's take Lovey Smith, who got fired down in Houston. I mean, that offensive staff that Lovey put together was not very good. You know, he ran the defense, but they let Lovey hire his guys. Well, that that hurt the franchise, but they weren't going to tell Lovey no, which is a problem. But then that goes back to alignment. There's that's why you have no alignment because mm-hmm. you can't have a, a conversation. People want to hire their friends. I got no problem with that if their friends are good. But what's wrong with hiring somebody who's not your friend who can make you better? That's a fair question. Speaking of alignment, the Indianapolis Colts, they hired Jeff Saturday as their interim head coach during week 10. Saturday went 1-7 and 
as the interim head coach and had a press conference to end the season and was talking about why he thinks he's a legitimate candidate for this head coaching job. Here's what he spoke with or had to say, I should say, with the media earlier this week. If I get this job, there's going to be significant change. You know, the way I do things is not the way things, um, you know, necessarily have been done. I have my own way. And so I, I think that's the part that, you know, as you're, as you're thinking about the way you want to run an organization as the head coach, that's, that would be my responsibility. You know, when I came in, I'm thrust into how things have been done, you know, for the past however many years. And I'm appreciative of that and, and the work that they've done and the success that they've had. Uh, but it will look different. And so, you know, understanding that that's, that's been part of my learning lesson, chap, right, is I've, I've looked at the things that I really like about what we do and the things that I don't necessarily like that we do. And, and there has to be, uh, you know, to, to lead an organization, there has to be alignment from all of us, from, from Mr. Ursay and Ballard and myself and, and the entire organization of how this thing looks. And, and as a leader, if you don't have that, um, I, I don't think you'd be effective. Oh, my God. Your thoughts? Oh, my God. I, I mean, the guy's a car salesman. I mean, he go, get him an Audi dealership. Let him sell cars. I mean, Jesus Christ. He's a TV I guy. I do what things do my way. How, what the fuck is his way? He's never done this job before, so how does he have a way? You know, how does he have a way? He's never done the job before. This is the first. I mean, this is he's going to do it the way he did it in high school? And, and if he didn't like the way he was, things were going, as a leader – you're either coaching it or allowing it to happen. Why didn't you say, no, we're not doing that? Mm. Oh, because you just got thrust into the job? Okay, let's take Steve Wilkes, right? Steve Wilkes said, okay, David Tepper, you want me to be the head coach? All right, I want to do things my way. I want to fire this defensive coordinator, Phil Snow. I want to promote Al Holcomb. I want to get rid of this extra special teams coach. I want to change this. I want to do that. I want to do that. Why did Steve Wilkes do that? Because Steve Wilkes was experienced. He'd been around the block a time or two. He he know what failed him in Arizona, and he wanted to correct it. Mm-hmm. This guy over here is making excuses. I do things my way. The operation's going to be different if I get the job. You're full of shit. Like stop it, Jeff. Like you're just selling people. Like that's enough. Like I mean, just sit there and say, hey, look, I learned a lot. I hope I get an opportunity to interview for this job. I think certainly there's tremendous amount of growth in my development. I think I can lead this team. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about this team. But don't go selling it. Look, I know he's got to sell himself. Don't go selling that it was all the fault of other people. Just blame somebody else. Blame the old system. Well, let me say this to you. The old system, you know, whatever the, you know, the old system is part of, part of what you inherited. That's what you do. Any great leader never says, here's my plan moving forward. They don't do that. Great leaders always do this. They say, I want to look back. I'm going to study what happened, and I'm going to figure out what the real problems are. And that's the issue. You know, I was, I'm reading, reading this book by Ed Smith. He's a, uh, a cricket player over in London. He wrote a book called Making Decisions. It's a fabulous book. Mm-hmm. You can get it on Amazon. He said, the best strategists in sports or business are shrewd historians of team success and team failure. Okay? History is vital that the other uh, history is vital to that other magic ingredient vision. It is a cliche to want leaders with vision, but vision is extremely difficult without perceptive reading of the past. Only then can good thinking be harnessed in compelling vision of the future. Vision will f- always follows from insight. The great sports coaches and strategists before they address how to play the upcoming matches first find hidden truths in what has already happened. And what Ed's saying is simply this. 
you got to understand the past and what has happened and what works and what doesn't before you start moving in the future. He doesn't even have a past. He's sitting there at the podium talking like he's coached 20 years in the league. <laughs> I would do things differently. I mean, look, I'm sure Jeff's a wonderful guy, and I don't it mean to be like, an asshole He seems here. like he's a great guy, yeah. I don't mean to be an asshole, but I just think to me, everything he does, it's very narcissistic. It's very narcissistic. It's all about him. It's all about what he's going to do. And if the owner's going to fall for that, that's great. But I guarantee you, you're going to get a lot of, you're going to have problems finding people that want to come in and work with that because it's only going to be your fault. I do things my way. You don't have a way. You don't have a way. There's no way you have. It's crazy. I mean, it's a joke. It's a freaking joke. I mean, it's, it's insulting. It's insulting to the people that have paid the dues in this profession, that have worked their ass off to become in position to do it, that have, that have a past, that can rely on the past. You know, it's, it's insulting to every minority candidate. It's insulting to every candidate that you stand there without serving an apprenticeship, without understanding anything about what the job is and what it isn't. And then you're sitting there saying you're trapped into the situation you walked into. No, you're not. They gave you the head coaching title. You could have done anything you want. You picked the play caller. You picked some poor kid who, who was working as a quality control coach, and you made him the play caller. And when I watched him on the sideline the other day, I thought he, was gonna, I thought he shit his pants. I, the poor kid. I feel so bad for that guy. I mean, he might be a great coach, but they put him in a job that he couldn't handle. I mean, he knows it. Look, here's the reality. The Dunning-Kruger effect is in full force in Indianapolis. This guy thinks he knows. I'm not even sure. Because like, he, he makes it seem like he, he has the answers, but it's like, bro, you don't, I don't even think you There's even know no the answers. Questions. He doesn't even know the There's questions. There's no answers. <laughs> like, Perfect point, Pemmy. He but, doesn't know the questions to ask. He, he knows know the, the buzzwords. <laughs> and like when he addressed that reporter by his first name, he's smooth. He's a politician. Uh -huh. He knows how to do that. He knows how to play it. Hey, I'm going to lower taxes. You know, hey, I'm going to take money from the wealthy. You know, he knows how to play that game. You know, he knows how to work both sides of it. He knows that Ursay was listening to that press conference. He was playing that all to Ursay. Mm -hmm. That's who he was playing. That was part of his interview. So he wants Ursay to ask the first question. Well, Jeff, how are you going to do things differently? Tell me. Instead, Ursay wouldn't ask. Uh, if I were Ursay, I would say, Jeff, if you're going to do things differently, why did you do that? When I gave you the job nine weeks ago, why did you do things differently then? That's the question. Did, did Ballard stop you from doing the job? Did, did did the special teams coach stop you from doing what you wanted? Who stopped you? I'll fire that guy. That's the question that he needs to answer. And Ursay, he's a, he's a wild card, so you never know what he's going to do. You said it in the last podcast that, hey, maybe Saturday might still have a chance to become the head coach. I couldn't believe it, but the more and more I read, the more I listen, and it's like, man, this could be a thing where he gets named as the permanent head coach. I know NFL Network's Jim Trotter was talking about it earlier this week, and he said that this is Jeff Saturday's job to lose. That's how he would kind of think about I this think head he's coaching right. search. I think he's right. That's, I think he's in, right. That's insane to me. That is insane. Right. Uh, it I, is. So, uh, and I think this is where Goodell has to become the commissioner. And basically for the protection of the, of, of the shield, because this is bad in so many other areas. This is bad in everything. This is horrendous in every area. You're going to give a guy with no experience the job. I mean, you know, you're going to pass. You, you know, you talk about having the Rooney rule. You're talking about having the Rooney rule, and you're going to give a guy a, not a, not the job. It, why not? If you don't, if you want to give a guy with not a lot of experience, call Dion up, make him the head coach. <laughs> At least he's been a head coach. <laughs> At least he's been one. He went somewhere and won. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, it, Dion, Dion's paid his dues. It's incredible. It, it truly is incredible. And uh, and our producer, Elliot Bowman, big-time Colts fan from Indianapolis, I feel bad for him. Because <laughs> if, if, they, if they go in this direction with Jeff Saturday, uh, I – who knows what happens, but I think we do know what will happen. It'll be more and more losing as they went one and seven under Saturday as the interim head coach. Uh, Michael, this news broke right before we, right after I should say that we taped the podcast on Monday. The Cardinals have fired Cliff Kingsbury after four seasons. Kingsbury was 28, 37 and one in those four years in Arizona. One winning season over that time. That was last year when they went 11 and six bowing out in the playoffs in the first round there. This comes after 10 months after they signed extensions, both Kingsbury and Kime, with the Arizona Cardinals. So we talked about the Kime, Kingsbury, and Kyler situation in that trio. They're all getting the extensions over the offseason and then having pretty much a disaster season here in 2022. Your thoughts on Kingsbury now done in Arizona? Well, I mean, look, uh, you know, it's funny. I watched the San Francisco game this morning, and I didn't think his team quit on him. I mean, actually, I thought he played pretty well with David Blau. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they forced some three and outs in the second quarter, and the game was a little closer until they started turning it over. I mean, look, Cl Cliff was in a tough situation. I think Cliff's really a good offensive coach. I'm not sure Cliff's going to be – he's going to need to learn how to be a head coach. They thrust him into that job without giving him any help. I thought the team building around it wasn't very good. But, I mean, I think it's a hard organization to work in. I don't think they understand what true alignment is. I think the owner thinks it's about picking the right guy. I, I would not be surprised if Van Joseph gets this job. I think, I think the way the defense played, and nobody's told me this, but I just from watching tape, the way the defense played with really a great attitude and demeanor, mm -hmm. and Vance has been in the building. He knows what the problems are. I, I would be surprised. I think Adrian Wilson will get the GM job, and I wouldn't be surprised if Van Joseph got the head coaching job. Adrian Wilson is very respected, played for the Cardinals, had a heck of a career as a player, and he's kind of been a guy that's they, paid And they like that, right? Yeah. So when I read you the Ed, Ed Smith quote, I mean, Larry Wilson was the GM there for years. He was an ex-safety, played there. Mm -hmm. you know. So they want to stay within. And Wilson, unlike some other people, has paid his dues. Whether he's good enough to be a GM, I don't know. I don't know the guy. But at least he's paid his dues. He went in there. He understands what it takes to become a personnel guy. So, But I do think at the end of the day, I know they requested permission to talk to Sean Payton. Mm -hmm. You know, I know you know they're going to probably – but they want to hire a GM first. So I, I do think that. And if they hire Wilson, I think that will lead us to Joseph. The Sean Payton point is interesting because Sean Payton has been – the Saints have granted three teams – permission to interview Sean Payton, the Texans, the Cardinals, and the Broncos. And I've seen clips around Twitter surfacing about Sean Payton talking glowingly about Kyler Murray and how he thinks he's a really talented Yeah, player. but he was talking about so. him coming out for the draft, mm -hmm. right? So I think you gotta you gotta temper that. Like, you know, when you're getting interviewed about players for the draft, you gotta be really careful and, you know, I mean, I'm sure he's watched the tape and I'm sure he thinks he could I mean he had an undersized quarterback at New Orleans and Drew Brees, yeah. but they were different, right? You know, they were a little different. I mean, I'm not sure New Orleans is just going to say, hey, Sean, go ahead and coach. We'll take a six-round pick for you. I don't think they're going to do that. It's going to require a first probably, right? I would think it would, yeah. I mean, at least. And I think if you go back through every trade that's been made for a coach, right, every trade that's been made for a coach, the, the team underpaid for it at the end of the day, right? Every trade, mm -hmm. you know, the coach proved to be worth more worthwhile than 
than the than the draft picks. So I'm not saying that, you know, so like if you look at it and you see what Gruden, you know, they won a Super Bowl with Gruden down in Tampa. He gave mm-hmm. up two number ones. Would you do that for a Super Bowl? I'm sure you probably hell, would. Hell yeah, I would. <laughs> you know, would you, you know, they won a Super Bowl because they moved, you know, the, uh, when you look at Belichick and what the Patriots paid, you know, so I think, I think there is, you know, the compensation has to be real. Last point on Cliff, and I've started to see this kind of surface because Kingsbury played for the Patriots as a backup quarterback for Tom Brady. Patriots currently, people think they're searching for an offensive coordinator since they never had one named this past season. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to take whatever you say after I ask this question as gospel because, of course, of your relationship with the head coach. But I got to ask it to you anyway because I'm interested in it. Would Kingsbury be a good fit as the offensive coordinator for the Patriots? And do you think that's uh, an avenue that that they explore? Well, I don't know if they'll explore the avenue, but I think he would be an outstanding fit. And here's why. I think he's been a head coach. He understands that program up there. Played in it. Okay. And so he understands the game from a head coaching level. I'm not saying he was a great head coach, Mm -hmm. but I think he does. And I think he's really good at 11 personnel. That's what he likes to run at Arizona, which is what the personnel is there. They have some 12 in New England. And I think he can coach the quarterback. I think he can coach the quarterback. So he meets the criteria that if, if they make a change, which obviously I've said it on the pod, they should, that I think that he certainly would be one of the guys that they would have to have a conversation with. You know, and develop and see, you know, because I think what, you know, Bill, Bill's not going to want to say, okay, I want to hire this guy and then, you know, I'll hire this guy. I mean, he wants somebody that's going to be with him for as long as he's going to stay in that, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to keep changing offensive systems and coaches. I mean, that was the advantage he had with Josh. You know, when Billy O'Brien went to Penn State, Josh was, was able to come back. So there was so much continuity between the systems that I think that, you know, you want to do it. It's like Sean McVay. You know, everybody keeps saying, is Sean McVay coming back? Is he coming back? Like, no. It, the, the answer is, <laughs> no. is he coming back? The answer is, will he come back for three years? Yeah. Because this this mess is going to take three years. Sean, Sean McVay coming back for one does us no good. It does us no good at all. So it's the same thing in New England. It's interesting because I think Kingsbury is going to be a guy that's linked to New England. I, I, I've seen people link him to Alabama. I mean, Alabama I'm sure he's going to be linked and, to the Jets. I mean, yeah. yeah, I'm sure he's going to be linked to Alabama. I mean, look, the, you know, he's going to have his choice. And look, he's going to probably – could he say, hey, I don't want to play? Yeah, maybe. O'Brien or Kingsbury, if you were in New England for an offensive coordinator? If I were in New England, I, I think I would probably – I like both guys a lot. I think I probably would go with Cliff. I mm-hmm. think when you're out of the league a little bit, I think you get a little – You fall, not that Billy couldn't catch up, but I think you kind of tend to fall behind a little bit. Yeah. And I think to me, uh, you know, I think it would probably be a lot easier to kind of get a fresher approach there because the system that Billy was running in New England has kind of deviated since Josh left. And I think that deviation is something Bill probably wants to do to kind of reduce the volume of it, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's also about, you know, how do we move forward? And I think that Cliff kind of answers both questions better. It's going to be a fun offseason out there in Foxborough. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they wish that they were playing in the playoffs, but I think they're always an interesting team in what they're going to do on the offensive side of the ball and Mac Jones's development heading into year three. Uh, Michael, final note here, Derek Carr of the Las Vegas Raiders, we saw the report from Ian Rappaport this morning 
that the Raiders are now going to start to explore the trade market for Derek Carr. Carr just tweeted about 15 minutes ago, uh, th- pretty much saying his goodbye to Raider Nation. Uh, the tweet, he put out a statement, says, Raider Nation, it breaks my heart. I didn't get an opportunity to say goodbye in person. We certainly have been on a roller coaster in our nine years together. From the bottom of my heart, I am so grateful and appreciative of the years of support you gave to my family and me. We had our share of both heartbreaking moments and thrilling game-winning drives. It always felt like you were the next, that you were there right next to me. It's especially hard to say goodbye because I can honestly say that I gave everything I had every single day in season and in the off season. He continues to thank the city of Oakland, thank the city of Las Vegas about the nine years and being in those two buildings in those two cities over his career. Then finally, he said, I once said that if I'm not a Raider, I would rather be at home. And I meant that, but I never envisioned it ending this way. That fire burning inside of me to win a championship still rages, a fire no man can extinguish, only God. So I look forward to a new city and a new team who, no matter the circumstance, will get everything I have. Winning a championship is what I've always wanted and what I will continue to work towards. God bless to you all and with love, DC4. So it's the official goodbye for Derek Carr after nine yeah. years with the silver and black. Well, I mean, I think obviously, you know, it's, the Raiders haven't said they moved on, but obviously they have. They've said with their actions, not with their words. So it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see where this all plays out. You know, Carr has a contract that he's due to make $40 million. It'll be, it'll be where does, who wants to assume that contract or would he better off being out there as a free agent? Could he make more? I don't think he's going to make more than that contract. I think he's going to have to restructure that contract. So... You know, look, I think in these situations, the best thing you can do is is just agree to disagree. You know, they don't think he can lead them to where that championship that he wrote about, and he thinks he can. So let's agree to disagree, handle this in a mature fashion, and move forward. Somebody told me, and I haven't been able to check this, but there's been 15 quarterbacks in the history of the NFL that have started for over 130 games for one team, for their only team. And, and 14 of them are either in the Hall of Fame, won a Super Bowl over most valuable players. Wow. That's... And what that tells you is, is the longer you go, if you don't deliver, people lose their patience. Mm-hmm. And and when you get to this point, Carr started 142 games. So he's over that number. Well, that's why he's going to be playing for another city and another team upcoming in 2023. Who do you think is the contender to land Derek Carr? You think it's Jets maybe, or which team you think would bring him in? I think it's all going to depend on who's the where the coordinator ends up. If it's somebody who's been with Carr before, perhaps. I think it's yet to be determined because we don't. Not all the chairs are taken. Head mm-hmm. coaching chairs are taken, or offensive coordinators chairs are taken. Final note, Michael. In sixty seconds, uh, did you see the uh, PFF national championship? I can't banner? do this in sixty seconds, Femi. <laughs> I'm too outraged to do it in sixty seconds. I like to know. You read it. Go ahead. Say it. It's Ohio State. Go ahead. Say it. The Ohio State Buckeyes who lost in the Peach Bowl to Georgia on on a last-second field goal were the uh, Pro Football Focus national champions. They graded out as the number one overall team. Number two, right behind them, was Michigan. Georgia, 15-0, was third. Minnesota was fourth. Air Force, fifth. And I'm I'm just hoping that PFF open up a sports book because I had some Ohio State to win the national title tickets. Uh, please pay me I out. Mean, I might, how I'm do you take put this, this crap my, out? I'm going to take. How this do you the put this book. crap out and sell it to people? Like like who? First of all, this is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, have you watched the Netflix thing on Madoff, where they're all on the <laughs> they're all on the 17th floor concocting false spreadsheets? Like when you put this shit out, put put back out your evidence that you decided that how you got to this point, Minnesota. Air Force. Minnesota wasn't the best team in the Big Ten. 
Forget about being the be- being the fourth best, third best team. I mean, you know, Michigan was second. I mean, Minnesota was fourth. I mean, put it out there. Put your name on it. Who does? Who came up with this? What system are you losing? Using right? Like, say what you want. Like, I I look at out football outsiders. I look at DVOA. I get it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they those guys they put out how they come up with what they come up with. I get it completely. Do I agree with it? Some I do. Some I don't. Do I think it's applicable? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. But what this is this is a Ponzi scheme. Like this is bullshit. Like what, what, put your name on this. Tell me how you came up with that. Could you imagine if I put my name on? If I said, "Hey, I think the four best teams in college." You know what they would say? You're an idiot. No wonder you got fired, Lombardi. This they put it out there like it's gospel. Like I should genuflect. Like I should go to mass. And then they don't. No, nobody. They don't tell you how they get to it. Air Force? Did they lose to Wyoming? Yeah. Like, are you fucking kidding me? How do you gain credibility when you put the, if I were Chris Collinsworth and they put this tweet out, I would fire them. Like, this is going to make us look like idiots. I'm just trying to get paid out on my Ohio State national title tickets. I mean, I mean, I don't understand it. Like, common sense isn't common. Like, like you think you're that much smarter than people that you think people are going to believe this bull. I mean, PJ Fleck doesn't believe this shit. My last point on this is I like that there's new and, and more ways that we talk about football and we try to measure football. I think that's always great. No stone unturned is, is typically my philosophy. But when the model spits out Ohio State as number one, maybe go back and tweak it. That, that's yeah. just, I mean, that's just look, my this is this is all this is what this is is just all numbers and they don't know who's playing in the game. That's what it is. They have no idea who's playing in the game. And some of their write up like the, the you know, I mean the write ups and who's in first. I mean, like I said, Give me, tell me the 64 better receivers than Jamar Chase. Remember that came out when we were on that? Yeah. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's a Ponzi scheme. Watch that Madoff documentary. It'll be perfect for this. We're going to take our first break on the other side. We'll get to our NFL awards. We're filling out the regular season ballot here on the GM Shuffle. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, before we can head into the playoffs, Michael, we got to put a bow on the regular season and hand out some hardware. The seven AP awards that we have in the NFL, MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, Offensive Player of the Year, Defensive and Offensive Rookie of the Year, Coach of the Year, and Comeback Player of the Year. A lot of people are putting out their ballots, so I figured, hey, we should put our ballot out as well. So, Michael, 
Who do you have as the most valuable player in the NFL this season? I had it as Mahomes. I mean, I know that sounds, you know, like I just think Mahomes has been really good. You know, without Tyreek Hill, he's even he's played better. Uh, you know, I think he's been consistent. He's spread the ball around, you know, and, you know, the fact that he's so deadly in the red zone. Like, you know, they, the Raiders played two games against them this year. They, they were, and the Chiefs were in the red zone eight times. They scored eight touchdowns in the red zone against them. And a lot of it is because, you know, he's hard to defend in the red zone because his movement creates problems for everybody, right? He moves right like that flip he had the other day. To me, you know, if we were having a draft and who would be the first pick overall in the NFL in the draft, it's going to be Mahomes. Yeah, I think 100 people out of 100, if you pulled on the street, would tell you Patrick Mahomes would be the number one pick in that draft. He's the best player in the league as far as I'm concerned. He's the reason why Kansas City has a chance to win the Super Bowl once again. They're going to have plenty of chances in the future to win the Super Bowl. He's my MVP this year. I think that goes without explaining. Uh, he's just that damn good. The defensive player of the year, Michael, who are you, who are you going with there? You know, I, I, I think it's Bosa. I mean, I think it's Bosa. I know you're going to go with Makai Parsons, but I just think Bosa is just – you know, he just takes the game over. And, you know, he's going to be hard to block no matter where they line him up. And the defense is – and that front in, in San Francisco is predicated on this this front. And I think it's just – to me, he's just too hard to handle. You know, he's got that ability to rush against anybody. He can go speed to power. He takes over a game. And you, if you don't set your protection to him, I mean, you're going to lose. I mean, look what happened against the Raiders. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Colton Miller had a bad set. He got pulled back. You know, that interception doesn't show up anywhere in Bosa's stat sheet, mm-hmm. but it was on him. That's 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 how they won that game. Bosa won that game for him. If you asked me this question in week four, I'd say Michael Parsons. If you asked me again in week 10, I'd say Parsons. If you asked me in week 14, I would say Parsons. But how Bosa finished this season and also Parsons getting a little bit banged up toward the back half of the year, I thought it swung the pendulum in favor of Nick Bosa. So I'm actually not going with my guy, Micah Parsons, Michael. I'm going with Nick Bosa as well. He led the league in sacks. Best player on the best defense. I think he earned the award for Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah, I I think this too, Femi. I think what you have to do is, and this is part of what I wrote about in the new book, Football Done Right, is the players that you must specifically game plan against Okay, like on Tuesday, what I call Tuesday players in the book. Tuesday players are what Hall of Fame players are. Look, Mm. Andre Reid's in the Hall of Fame, and and he he had tremendous production and all that. Okay, he got in, all that stuff. But you've never game planned for Andre Reid. You know, it's like you don't game plan to stop uh, Keenan Allen. He's he's a really good player. Mm. I mean, there's a difference between great and elite. He's a really good player. Andre Reid was a really good player. He benefited from the scheme. He benefited from the era. But you didn't game plan against him. You didn't game plan for Art Monk. You game plan for Ricky Sanders. You game plan for for, uh, Charlie Brown. You game plan for those outside guys. You had a game plan for John Riggins. You know, those Tuesday players like Bosa, you got a game plan. You got to specifically say, if we don't block this guy, if we don't take him out of the game, we have no chance to win the game. To me, that's how you get Defensive Player of the Year. I think, I think certainly Makai is one of those Tuesday players, too. Mm-hmm. I just think Bosa's a little better. Yeah, th- those are the guys that keep the offensive coaches up at night, you know, <laughs> thinking about how the hell yeah. do we block them because they can wreck our game plan. Offensive Player of the Year, Michael, who are you going with? You know, I mean, look, I, I, think, t- I think this is one of those where, it, to me, the way Minnesota has won all those games, if Jeff, mm-hmm. Justin Jefferson wasn't on the field, I don't see how they could win all those games. I mean, he gets doubled everywhere. 
you know, you know, you got him, I got him, and nobody ends up getting him, right? He gets the ball in the end zone. He changes the play. I think if Jalen Hurts would have finished the season healthy, mm-hmm. you know, I think I would have given it to Jalen Hurts. But just the way that the way that Justin Jefferson, you know, he's got he had 184 targets, Femi. That's crazy. And he got 1,800 yards. You know, 128 of those catches. He almost had a 70 percent. It was he had a 69.6 percent catch percentage on the 184 targets, and he's getting doubled every play. They're trying to take him out of the game. I think that's I think, and he's a Tuesday player. You go into that game saying, if we don't stop Jefferson, they're going to kick our ass. Justin Jefferson is my choice as well. I was almost close to actually giving this to Mahomes as well and giving him both MVP and Offensive Player of the Year, but Mahomes just came just shy of that passing yards record, the single-season record that was set by Peyton Manning. But if he had broken that record, I would have given it to Mahomes, but I wanted to also recognize Justin Jefferson. So Jefferson is my Offensive Player of the Year. Let's get to the rookies, Michael. Defensive Rookie of the Year. I'm curious to hear uh, who you pick here in this uh, award. You know, I, I I mean, I've watched a lot of Jet defensive tape, and I do think Sauce Gardner is really a good player, and I think he's mm-hmm. deserving of it. I think he's got some swagger. I think he's going to have to play a little bit more physical in the tackling game, but I thought he was really good. And in their scheme, I think because of his skill set, they can do so much more than just play uh, a Seattle three. I think he gives them a chance to, if Salai is really smart, and diversified in thought and curious that they can adapt that scheme and become a lot better and then take away the number one receiver or put him on the number two receiver and double the other guy. But I think the strength of the Jets was they improved their corner situation with DJ Reed and obviously with Gardner. Yeah, those guys were locked down on the outside. And and full disclosure, uh, we've talked about I have the Tariq Woolen ticket at 200 to 1 to win Defensive Rookie of the Year. I thought this is one of the more closer races that we had. I know a lot of people are saying Sauce Gardner. Gardner's been awesome. Aiden Hutchinson came on as well in the second He's half of the good, season. Yeah. I mean, He's been really good. Like, like, There's a lot of talent. Tariq Woolen obviously had a really good season. But I think I would still go with Tariq Woolen as a Defensive Rookie of the Year, despite what Sauce Gardner did. Uh, no other play in football swings win probability quite like turnovers other than touchdowns of course because that's how you get points on the board takeaways are the biggest thing when you look at who wins and loses some of these games and Tariq Woolen led the league in takeaways with eight he led the league in interceptions with six and these weren't just interceptions to where it was Hail Marys and he was just picking off random interceptions these were game-changing plays particularly against the Detroit Lions when he got a pick six and the Seahawks won that game 48-45. That game ended up deciding which team went to the playoffs and which team didn't. So I think they're all kind of even around that same playing field. But the fact that Woolen made the most impactful plays towards winning, I would give it to Tariq Woolen if I had a ballot. And not just because I have the ticket, but I think these guys are all close. But I'm going to reward winning over both Hutchinson and Gardner sitting at home this weekend while Woolen's team is in the playoffs. And I think you make a great point, and that's why I think Kayvon Thibodeau deserves a lot of credit. I think he yeah. deserves to be more in this conversation than we let him have because he's really coming on. I mean, he's really coming on. He's mm. starting to – I think this weekend when he plays against Minnesota and that right tackle oh. for Minnesota who's – you know, he's going to create some real havoc. And so I think that he deserves – I think he deserves some of this, you know, some of this too. You know, and we've seen – look, Charles Cross – I mean, I know we're talking about defense, but mm-hmm. there's been some rookies that have been able to come in and make a difference. But I think as this year went on, Thibodeau really has developed – and has kind of tilted the field a little bit to the Giants as they start to build their pass rush. So I think he deserves, and, he, and they were obviously got in the playoffs, so he mm-hmm. deserves that conversation. Yeah, imagine if Thibodeau was healthy to start the season. My goodness. He could yeah, I think really that's good. the only thing that holds you back because yeah. he's on fire. I mean, he's hard to block right now. He's playing mm-hmm. really well. 
He's, he's a blue chip guy, man. He's he's a stud. Uh, offensive rookie of the year, Michael. Oh, man. You know, I think it's Kenneth Walker. I think he's made the biggest impact. I mean, certainly you could give it to Brock Purdy, but I do think I, I think Kenneth Walker gives them – I know he was hurt for a couple games, but I think he gives them something that they need, and he's been dynamic. I mean, I think I would have given it to Brees Hall, Brees Hall earlier in the year, mm-hmm. but, you know, then he gets hurt. You know, it's all these tackles, you know, whether it was, you know, Evan Neal, who I think played good, I think Cross, I think – you know, Iwaku, uh, is that how you say? Iquanu. Iquanu. Yep. You know, he kind of was up and down. I thought he played, you know, so. But I, I think you got to give it to Walker. I think Purdy, we'll get to San Francisco in a minute, but Purdy's really good, but it's the perfect match, too. Mm-hmm. It's the perfect match. I'd go with Garrett Wilson if I was filling out a ballot. Wilson was fantastic. 83 catches, 1,100 yards, and this is with Zach Wilson, Joe Flacco, and Mike White throwing him the football. If he gets some competent quarterback play in there, I think he's going to become one of those guys that is in that top five to seven wide receivers once he really hits his stride. He was fantastic this season. Uh, Only started in 12 games. He played in all 17, and he put up some big-time numbers. Touchdowns were a little low with only four, but uh, I thought Garrett Wilson was the best wide receiver that we saw in that rookie class. He was outstanding. Uh, I I think we have to make people more aware of touchdown to catch ratio. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's really an important stat in football. I, I think, I, and, and it's a little bit out of whack now, and I understand it. It's not like in the old days when we talked about it last week when, you know, we're talking about receivers like Paul Warfield, you mm-hmm. know, who, who has, you know, 427 catches, but he's got 85 touchdowns. You know, we're talking about Charlie Taylor, 649, and he's got 79 touchdowns. That era, they didn't get the ball very much, but they're touched. But but that number needs to be really strong. It needs to be really strong. I like Randy Moss, 156, you know, touchdowns on 982. To me, that's that that's a number we have to. I'm not saying it doesn't apply to to uh, to uh, Wilson because mm-hmm. he's certainly going to get better at that. But I think that's something we don't discuss enough. It's like the assist. Assist turnover ratio in basketball. You know, yeah, you're getting a lot of assists, but are you turning it over a lot? Yeah, you're getting a lot of catches. Are you getting the ball in the end zone? I mean, you know, James mm-hmm. Lofton had 764 catches and played in the modern era, 75 touchdowns. How about my man Steve Largent? You saw him, right? Steve yeah. Largent had 819 catches. He had 100 touchdowns. I mean, Steve Largent was the all-time leader in all the receiving yards records until Jerry Rice came around and just blew everything right. out. Right, and, and you know a guy that nobody talks about in terms of catch to – I mean, everybody thinks Chris Carter was a possession receiver, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, 1,100 catches. Got 130 touchdowns. All he does is catch touchdowns is what Chris Berman always said. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a touchdown There's maker. something for that, my man. It, yeah. it matters. No, it does matter. It does not, definitely matter. Coach of the year, who are you going with? I went with Tomlin. I got a lot of shit for it, too, but I'm okay with it. I could stand up. I love I love Dayball. I think Dayball deserves a lot of credit. Yeah. I think Dan Campbell certainly had a better second half than he did a first half, and I think he's growing. I think Dan Campbell, I, I thought he would play well. I thought his team would come out and play well in the last game. I think Dan Campbell's biggest challenge is now going from good to great. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're good, and everybody's really happy in Detroit. Now, how do we get great? I think that's going to be the measure – and we'll see. And he and if he gets great next year, he should win Coach of the Year because that to me is he's restored him. Uh, I think Dayball was great. You know, I got a lot. Of, I did a podcast with a couple of these guys. They're kind of 
fun fun guys. I don't know what the name of the podcast. I think it's called the Fusco Podcast or something. I don't know. They they kind of they're two Eagle fans that give me shit. Mm-hmm. I think Sirianni's done a nice job, but I think Sirianni's a combination. I think that organization really does do a lot of help. Mm-hmm. I think he's done a good job developing the quarterback, running that offense, defend building that offense around him. But Tomlin's team, to me, from where they started to where they ended, and it's the same thing you could say for Dan Campbell. The difference between me with Campbell and Tomlin is Tomlin's doing it rookie. I mean, Campbell's doing it with a veteran in Jared Goff who went to a Super Bowl. Tomlin had a heck of a job, and like we've said, no losing seasons on his track record over 16 years. I went with Brian Dayball because we talked about where that roster was at the start of the season, and I oh, mean, yeah. it I, was just atrocious. I, I can't argue with it. Yeah, I can't argue with you, but I mean, I think to me, I, I, I just think to me, you know, Tomlin, rookie quarterback, all mm-hmm. that. I mean, he, I can't argue with you, and certainly Brian deserves it. And if he mm-hmm. wins it, I wouldn't be surprised. I just, to me, to me, where where Tomlin was able, I mean, if I'm in, if I'm in Cleveland, I'm the owner of the Brownies, and I watch Tomlin win nine games, and my coach only wins seven, and I got a better team, that's a problem. It's definitely a problem. Uh, I know Sirianni, a lot of people will throw him out there. Like you mentioned, those Eagle fans were talking about Sirianni. But, I mean, we first guessed this with the Eagles way back in May about how talented that roster was and how well the organization put that team together. It doesn't take away with what they did, 14-3, and number one seed in the NFC. They win the division. But also, he had a stacked cupboard with what he was working with. Yeah. So, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, a fan sent me, uh, a, a fan from the Bay Area sent me a, an email saying his wife was upset that I uh, – compare the Eagles' schedule to Gonzaga because she felt like Gonzaga does play a tougher schedule. They play St. Mary's. I get that. But, I mean, the schedule was – I mean, when they played Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh wasn't playing very well. When they played when they played some of these games, some of these teams were not playing yeah. well. So, you know, I mean, look, the, I, and I've said this all year, even though I criticize the schedule, the Eagles can't control who they play. No. They, they, they can't control who they play. No. It's, you can play the teams who are on the schedule, and you got to still execute and win those games. Final award, Michael, Comeback Player of the Year. This is a tough one. I, I think it's Geno. I really do. I, if, if Geno's not on that team, Seattle's not going to the playoffs. I, I mean, you could say Barkley. Yeah, Barkley missed some games. Mm-hmm. But I think a, it was a common – the Giants' success was a combination of a lot of things. I mean, Geno, to me, is the difference, right? I mean, Geno had a career year – he he's he's the quarterback. He kind of made the plays they needed to make. He he took over a job that you know the the other guy wasn't supposed. The other guy was supposed to be so great. Almost seventy percent completion percentage. Throws thirty touchdown passes. I mean, you know, I just think the guy was. He deserves it. You can say whatever. I mean, Christian McCaffrey's a nice story, but mm-hmm. they got other guys on that team yeah. that can do other things too. Like you take Geno Smith off this team and you put DJ, you put uh, uh, my man from Missouri, Drew Locke, Drew Locke out there. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm not. I mean, to me, 17 games he produces nine wins. Some of them, you know, not the fault of his. His defense wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. I mean, got the ninth, ninth best, ninth best scoring offense in football. You know, I mean, tenth in the league in yards per attempt down the field. Fourth in touchdown passes thrown. I mean, I think. Seventh, and you know, in the ability to run the football, I'm going with Geno. Yeah, I would go with Geno Smith as well. And I know a lot of people who don't want to go with Geno Smith. They say, "Well, what is he coming back from? He's coming back." Like 
He was a second round play? pick. Yeah, he did, he was a second round pick for he the coming New York back Jets, from his career, and he came back from his career. Like this is a redemption arc for Geno Smith. He started those seasons in New York. It didn't go well. Then he gets resonated to being a backup with the Giants, with the, the Chargers, and then in Seattle. He's a backup for all these teams. And then he actually has this redemption arc to where he puts the Seattle Seahawks into the playoffs. Like it's a hell of a story, and it's a hell of a redemption for Geno Smith. So I, I believe he is the rightful winner of Comeback Player of the Year. We'll see what happens. NFL Honors is uh, Super Bowl week, so we still got a lot of time before they actually announce these awards. But those are our ballots on the GM Shuffle. Michael, let's take another break. We'll get to watch the tape and talk about the 49er offense. All right, we figured that we'd do a new segment here on the GM Shuffle because we try to find some of the answers that football fans are looking for and figure out what is actually happening on the field and not just the narrative of what you guys hear in the daytime talk shows or what have you. So this is a segment that we're introducing called Watch the Tape. Well, we'll take a look at a player, a unit, a coaching staff, or what have you, and try to find what's really going on underneath the hood. And we're going to start this off with the San Francisco 49ers offense. I think this is a really interesting team and in how they've really grown into being an explosive offense despite the injuries they've had at the quarterback position to Trey Lance and to Jimmy Garoppolo. So, Michael, when you watch the tape, what makes this Niners offense so difficult to defend? Well, I think in any sport, basketball, football, and we learn a lot from basketball, right? So basketball, they have five positions, point guard, small forward, you know, off guard, power forward, center. And then in basketball, the evolution has been power set, you know, a big, you know, they go small, they make you go small, they make you match up, they do different things based on substitution. Well, the NFL gets a lot of conversation about plays, you know, and really, it's really not about plays. Everybody kind of runs similar plays, but the most effective offense, the offense that's the hardest to defend, is the one that's multiple without substituting. Mm. This is what you this is where personnel and coaching has to find a way to manage, right? And so when you interview an offensive coach and he comes in I want to run this, I, 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 that's great. I want to hear I need these five skill players so I can move them all around and play differently, which is what Kyle has. So Kyle has in McCaffrey who's also a receiver. So when he comes out and says he's got Elijah Mitchell in the backfield and he's got McCaffrey, he's got Kittle, and he's got two receivers, he's in 11 if he wants to be, right? He's in 11. So if you're the Arizona Cardinals and he's in that personnel group, you go to nickel against him, now, he's, now he can run the ball on you. If you stay base, you lose the matchup. And so then he substitutes, he substitutes Wilson for Juszczyk, and you say, okay, now i got to go base because he's got a fullback in the game. No. Juszczyk can go out there and catch the ball, <laughs> and, and he can be the back in the backfield, and then they can go empty out of that, and if they put you in empty out of base, they, they can't. It, it's the power of substituting without substituting. That's what makes San Francisco so damn good because they don't have to. They don't have to. They, they'll go, they might go to three receivers to get you in nickel. They control everything that happens on the field by how they substitute. And then once they substitute, they can trap you, and they can force you into something you don't want to do. I, I learned this. I, I wrote about this in Gridiron Genius. It, it's the, what made the Bulls so great, right? Mm-hmm. Pippen, Jordan, interchangeable players. One guy could play two, three, four. One guy could play one, two, three, four. And so when... Jackson wanted to change the dynamic based on what the offense, based on what the defense was out there. His opponent, he all he had to do was move move Pippen and Jordan around, and it and it and it created this Rubik cube that you could never square up. 
That's San Francisco right now. It was New England for a while when you had Gronk and Hernandez and you had two backs and you had the two receivers, right? And then, you know, and then depending, and then, then what did, what did Wade Phillips do in the Super Bowl to give New England the most trouble? He didn't care about who was on the field other than what the back was. So he played the defense to the back. That's all he did. And, and so that's, that's ultimately where he got, where he led himself down the road. Mm. And that's what makes San Francisco so, so good. Because like Buffalo, once you declare how, what you're doing with your offense, people will get a gauge of it. People catch up to it, right? Mm-hmm. When you have personnel that's interchangeable, it's hard to catch up to. No, I think that's a, <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's a really good point in terms of the personnel being so multiple. And like you talk about the playmakers they have. McCaffrey can be a running back, a receiver. Debo Samuel can be a receiver or a running back. Like, like, like they're so multiple in the way that they can go without ever having to change up their look, and it gives defense so many issues. So now with Brock Purdy at the controls of this offense, rookie quarterback, he's undefeated so far in the regular season, has yet to lose a game, has yet to play poorly in this offense. Is this an offense that can still perform at a high level and ultimately lead this team to a Super Bowl despite having a rookie QB? Well, you know, it's funny. I read that Ed Smith quote, right? And mm-hmm. I talked about the Ed Smith quote about how you have to understand the history to to prepare the strategy moving forward. And if I'm Seattle, right, and I go back over the, the last five playoff games that Kyle Shanahan has been a part of, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, he in the Minnesota game, they ran it 47 times. He called 19 passes. In the Green Bay game, he called eight passes. They ran it 42 times. <laughs> you know, and then... Then he won. Then another time he called 19 passes, ran it 29 times. Then one. Then against the Rams, he called 26, 30 passes. They couldn't run it. They ran 20 for 50. He couldn't run the ball. Mm-hmm. And then the Super Bowl, he he ran 22 times. That's all he ran, and he had to throw 31 passes. So to me, knowing the way Kyle plays in in these kind of games, these games are different than the regular games. He's going to run the ball. And he's going to limit Purdy from having to make too many of these plays. Hell, he's won two playoff games with throwing it under 20 times. He's won three of them with throwing it under 30 times. His three wins in the three playoff games have come when the quarterback has thrown it under 30 times. So I think that's what he'll do. And I think he understands that you know he can run for Purdy similar plays out of different looks. See, this is the key to being great at quarterback. It's the Joe Gibbs. Why was Joe Gibbs winning with 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 all these great with with Mark Rippon with Stan Humphreys with Doug Williams because he was running the same plays out of different formations, and so when the quarterback hit his step, it all looked the same, and so you know and and he kept it simple and it was simple, but you couldn't stop it. it that's what that's that's what San Francisco will do. I think he can do it with Brock Purdy. I really do. As long as Brock Purdy's accurate, yeah. and as long as they don't get into long down situations and they play from in front, they got a really good chance. And this is something that you first guessed when Jimmy Garoppolo first got hurt in that game against the Miami Dolphins. And I asked you, I said, hey, do the Niners need to go out and get a veteran quarterback? Do they need to do something? You said, hey, they can still win a Super Bowl with Brock Purdy. So we're seeing them right now. They've reeled off many, many wins. I believe 10 wins in a row to end the regular season. And now they're the two seed in the NFC and have as good a chance as anybody to uh, win a Super Bowl and get to Glendale, Arizona. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this offense I'm interested to see if they were to ever get down in a game because it feels like they've been playing from a, from front for a lot of these situations. But so far, they've checked every single box, even with Brock Purdy 
at the quarterback here. Do you think there's a glaring weakness in Brock Purdy's game? Because so far we've seen him play extremely well. I think the only weakness is if they get behind. If they get behind in the fourth quarter. I mean, why did they lose to the Rams? The Rams scored 13 points in the fourth quarter against them. Yeah. I mean, that where they have to if they have to get into a two minute, we gotta throw this football drop back pass, then it becomes a problem. But I think they can manage that. All right. That does it for watch the tape. We'll take our final break and we'll get to Super Wild Card Weekend on the other side. All right, the moment we've all been waiting for Super Wild Card Weekend is here. And it starts off in Santa Clara with Seattle Seahawks taking on the San Francisco 49ers. The Niners, nine and a half point favorites at our show sponsor, DraftKings, total 42 and a half. We just got done talking about their offense, but how do you think their team does against Seattle on Saturday afternoon? You know, the forecast is rain, 12.6 mile an hour wind. I think this mm-hmm. favors Seattle. I think to me, a muddy field slows down the explosiveness of San Francisco. Uh, I think it's hard to play a team three times, but I think San Francisco, you know, the first game they completely dominated. Uh, they were just too much. I think that the offensive line of Seattle with the two rookie tackles, they're not rookies anymore. They've started 17 games, so they're not rookies anymore. But this will be hard for them. They, they, they have to find a way to do what the Raiders did and run it a little bit. Not, not, not at a high, not, you know, not at a high average, but enough to keep this out of Geno throwing it 50 times. And so I think it'll be hard. I do think the rain helps Seattle. With the, mm-hmm. They've got to be able to slow the game down a little bit, and they can't play from behind. I mean, that's, you know, Seattle's going to have a hard time. Now, Seattle, the problem is Seattle's defense struggles. You know, Seattle's defense struggles. You know, they threw, gave up 370 in the, in the Trey Lance game that would, became the Jimmy Garoppolo game. They gave up 373 yards. So, you know, and then the game on Thursday night, they, they came back and, they, you know, they gave up 170-yard rushing. I mean, if I'm Seattle, I got to say, we got to do whatever we can do to stop the run. If Brock Purdy beats us throwing, Brock Purdy beats us throwing. But, you know, you're going to have to make some. I mean, Arizona in that game, I mean, Arizona starts the game last week. They score on the trick play. Mm -hmm. Then they kind of have a great drive down the field. They move the football on them. And then they started to turn it over and the game got away. So, you know, for me, you know, I think you know you're only going to have so many drives. Your defense has got to get some stops. Can Seattle? I don't think so. Yeah, I think San Francisco wins the game. I did not bet this game because that's a lot of points to be laying, and I still want to see what Purdy handles the playoff pressure and all that stuff, and also the weather being a factor. I think that makes it for a sloppy game, which hurts the more efficient team, but I think the Niners go ahead and win this game. It's probably not going to look pretty since the the forecast, but San Francisco advances, I believe. Uh, the night game on Saturday, Chargers at the Jaguars. Chargers now two-and-a-half-point favorites at DraftKings, total 47-and-a-half. I think this has the chance to be really, really fun. Yeah, I think it is. And you go back and watch the first game. It's kind of a, a, a it was really, I don't, not, I'm not sure they should have played Herbert in the game because mm-hmm. he just couldn't play. I mean, the ribs were a problem. Uh, and, you know, they didn't, and Mike Williams was playing. Keenan Allen wasn't. They, they turned the ball over, got sacked, strep fumble. They held him to a field goal. And then, they, you know, they got up a touchdown. They, they're down 16 to seven. And he just never was in rhythm. They never could get going against him. And Jacksonville kind of, work their way to get it. I, I think the Chargers are playing a lot better now. And I think they'll take advantage of Jacksonville. I think if they can protect against the two edges of Jacksonville, Allen and Walker, you know, and then handle the inside, I, I think they've got a chance. They've got to be able to get Eckler involved in the run game. They got it. To me, this is a game about who wins time of possession. Who plays less defense? Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a, you know, I mean, if you're going to get 10 possessions in this game, you got to be able to say, okay, we'll get ten. We we got to be able to control the clock, and we got to score. 
we can't just kick field goals. We got to score. And both coaches, it was interesting. Doug Peterson went for it on fourth down in the last game when they played out there in Los Angeles. He's changed his his temperament. But I just think with Herbert and the way they're playing defense with Bosa, I I really like – I think the Chargers are a team to play. I really do. Now, you know that stat, Femi? Steve Mackinan put that stat out that that I think – I I talked about it on the show yet. Uh, In the wild card round – if you like the winner, the winners are 54-7-1 against the spread. Wow. 88%. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think so. If you, so if you, if you like the winner, pick the, the winner usually covers. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that has to do with maybe the, the lines are tighter, but it's really still an impressive stat there that if, it's, if the favorite, if they're going to win, they typically cover, and if the dog is going to cover, they're typically going to just win the game. I'm still deciding, but here's a fun fact for you, Michael. Trevor Lawrence has never lost a game on a Saturday in high school, college, or the NFL. (laughs) How's that for a stat? Uh, That's not a reason as to why I would lean towards Jacksonville, but I do lean towards Jacksonville in this game. If it ever were to hit three, I'm going to take the plus three with the Jaguars. I might even take Jags on the money line, Michael, just because I think that this is – these are two evenly matched teams – both inexperienced quarterbacks in the postseason, but I think the coaching edge with Doug Peterson is what I feel most comfortable with over Brandon Staley. This is Staley's first playoff game as well as a head coach. Peterson's been there, done that. He's won a Super Bowl. He's been to another uh, divisional round as a head coach. I think that's the experience playing at home, that that atmosphere in Duval County with the Chargers having to go all the way across to the other side of the coast. I think the Jaguars might shock the world. And win this game. I, I don't. I. I never think that travel is going to be an issue. Here's what I would say to you on the coaching. I think that when you go back and watch the Jacksonville mm-hmm. get blown out by Detroit, to yeah. me that gave Joe Lombardi a great opportunity to study what Detroit did, and then model what they did in his form. Because Mike Caldwell, who has played against this New Orleans offense since he's been in Tampa, right? So he knows it. He understands it. He knows the play calls. He knows when they're going to call screen. He knows kind of the flow of it. And he has, but when he went to Detroit with Ben Johnson, Ben Johnson kind of, you know, he put 41 on him. They couldn't slow him down. I think that's going to be the key, key part of the game besides the head coaches, besides Staley versus Peterson in the matchup of defense coordinator versus offensive coordinator. I think this one is, and I think if, if Caldwell who has practiced and played against this Saint offense, which is what we're seeing from the Chargers. Mm-hmm. I think if they win, it's because they understand how to defend it. I th- or And if the Chargers win, it's because they know how to attack the Todd Bowles defense. I, I lean towards knowing how to attack the Todd Bowles defense. Yeah, and uh, Jags secondary has been a little suspect, I think, as well in the second half of the season. Sunday morning, Dolphins at the Bills. Bills right now 13-point favorites, total 43.5. No Tua Tungavailoa. That's why that line is so high. Maybe even no Teddy Bridgewater. It could be Skylar Thompson at quarterback here for Miami, which would be a, a sad situation because then the game is not going to be very competitive, but it's a playoff game nonetheless. Who wins and uh, what do you think that happens on Sunday morning? Well, I mean, if it's if you got Skyler, right, you got to take the same approach you took against the Jets, right? You got to say, okay, we're going to run it. They can run for 162 yards. I think the bigger issue in this game is how Buffalo plays Skyler Thompson. If Buffalo comes out and tries and plays their nickel, their smaller defense, which is what they play all the time, by the way, if they play that, then Miami's got to run them the fuck out of it and just say we're going to run it against you, like they did the last time, yeah. like they did the last game they played. Right? We'll take shots and we'll run. It's either going to be a shot or a run, you know, and we're going to boot and do all those things. I mean, they could manage the game in a way to where they could slow it down 
And if they can cover, now the problem is that the Miami hasn't been able to really cover. Their, I mean, Xavier Howard has had one of the worst years he's had in his career. I don't know why, but he has. And that's typically not like him. He's a pretty good player. They struggle to cover. And they're going to have to win the game with defense. Can they, Are they good enough on defense? And Josh Allen can't make a mistake. I think the line's a little overrated. I really do. Hmm. I understand why it is, but I think it's overrated. But, I mean, I don't trust Miami to be able to play the style that I'm talking about. Yeah, it's a first-time head coach and a first-time quarterback. It ends up being Skylar Thompson for the Dolphins. Uh, on, a, on a positive note, DeMar Hamlin, the Bills' safety, was discharged from the hospital in Buffalo and will continue to rehab at home. So it's just getting more and more fantastic news on DeMar Hamlin as we wish him yep. all the best in his I, recovery. I, I, I'm sure he's going to be at the game, and when he's yeah. at that game, baby, you know, it's an extra watch jolt. out, hold on to your ass. Yeah. You know, the other thing I want to say about San Francisco is San Francisco's kicking game, their return game, mm-hmm. is really good. That Ray-Ray McLeod, that gives them an advantage as they move forward. They're really good in that area. They're good in a lot of areas, which is why they've won 10 straight and are the two seed. Giants at the Vikings. This is Sunday afternoon. Right now, Minnesota, three-point favorites, total of 48 in the two teams where a lot of people think they might be frauds. Well, one of them is going to advance. Who do you think that team is, Michael? Well, I mean, the last time they played them, you know, Minnesota was able to, you know, they were, Minnesota was a five and a half point favorite. They had an eight point lead late in the game and mm-hmm. the Giants came back and scored and went for the two point play and got it. And then they lose it in overtime. I mean, this is really going to be a game, This, but this is a different game now. I mean, this is a completely different game because the the Giants, you know, when they played them the last time, the, that game, the, the, the offensive line for the, for the Vikings was intact, right? But the, since that game, they've lost Brian O'Neill. They've lost uh, Bradbury. The center may not play in this game. So, I mean, this offensive line is going to look a little different, right? And so I, I think, to me, that's the biggest concern I have. And the Giants, who love pressure, you know, who are going to, you know, really put the you – know, make sure that they get to Cousins early in the game and say, okay, here, you know, you're going to have to prove you can play well in this game. You know, but with Jones and Whitehair – I mean, excuse me, with with, with – uh, Ingram at right mm-hmm. tack uh, at right guard and a, a duo at, at right tackle and then Reed at center and Cleveland. I mean, this is not a good offensive line for this time of the year. That's what worries me, and I think it gives the Giants a significant edge. I think the Giants can put pressure on them. Look, the one thing about Minnesota, they're going to come out and they're going to try to run seven man protections. They're going to try to take away the the free runners and the blitz. You'll see a zillion screens. And, you know, the Giants have got to do a good job of corralling Cook and not letting him control the game. And if they do that, they'll be in, they're going to be in this game to the end. I don't think there's any doubt. Yeah, I think it's a close game either way, whoever wins it. I laid two and a half with the Vikings. Uh, that number popped Sunday evening. It's now three. And I think if it were ever get to three and a half, I would take the three and a half with the Giants. I think three is the right number in this game. And whichever team wins, probably going to win by a field goal based on how they play. Final game, Michael. Ravens and the Bengals, Sunday night football. Bengals, eight and a half point favorites over at DraftKings, total 40 and a half. It doesn't sound like we're going to get Lamar Jackson we're from not uh, reading Lamar. the tea leaves. I yeah. mean, we're not getting Lamar. There's no chance we're getting Lamar. I mean, he's not playing. I mean, you know, it hasn't even, you know, I mean, look, we don't, We said last week John Harbaugh was completely frustrated. That that hasn't changed, you know, and I, I, there's no way you're going to put Lamar. Do we get Huntley? That's the question, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, in this game, I have this, you know, I mean, at seven, it tells you we might get Anthony Brown. I mean, you know, it went, it yeah. shot up when it was now. I mean, Anthony Brown did not play well. I mean, I don't know how you – now it's up to nine and a half. I mean, Circa has it at nine and a half this morning. Yeah. That's what it was last week when Anthony Brown played. That's If, if we get Anthony Brown, I mean, it's it's a bummer. 
it's it's a bummer to the way to to wrap up the season. But yeah, nine and a halfs are popping, nines are popping. The, those are definitely not. But Tyler they played. You know, Baltimore. Baltimore. You know, Anthony Brown turned it over. Baltimore was hanging in there. I mean, mm-hmm. they made a game of it. I think the hardest thing to handicap, and that's why I wrote about it this week, is you have to almost ignore Week 18 because you can't check, you can't really understand the motivation in the game where they playing as well. I think Cincinnati was holding back a little bit. I think they knew they had to play them, but to me, you know, I, I think ultimately, you know, this will be a hard game for Baltimore, especially if they fall behind and have to throw it. Yeah, uh, Cincinnati. Their offensive line injuries though do concern me a little bit going forward. I, I don't know if it's going to matter in this game. They couldn't run the ball last game. Losses. I mean, yeah. they could not run the ball. And they, yeah, had, they it, couldn't run the ball. They had issues protecting Burrow as well. There was a couple sacks, and then there was a strip sack uh, in the game as well. So I, I think that the right side of that offensive line is a little bit of a problem, and that might rear its ugly head maybe in the divisional round, or if they were to get to the AFC title game, I think they could be in a little bit of trouble. But uh, we will get to Cowboys Bucks on Monday, Michael after we recap all the games from Super Wildcard Weekend. But that does it for this week's edition of the podcast. Thank you to our producer, Elliot Bowman. Thank you to DraftKings. Thank you to VEASAN. Thank you to you, and Michael. thank you to Jeff Saturday for the wonderful quotes. I appreciate it. Jeff Saturday, always welcome on the podcast. I think he listens. He's talking about alignment. So, Jeff, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. We'll talk to you guys on Monday as we recap the five games from the Wildcard Weekend and then also preview the game that's probably going to give me an ulcer, Cowboys-Bucks. 